Much like a professional athlete, what am I going to do? How am I going to spend my time to improve my skill set, to improve my game, so that I can be a competitor? If you look at a company like SpaceX, SpaceX has the advantage of being able to take, you know, probably the top one percent of all people that apply to the company and make them part of their、uh, make them part of their employee pool. You know, if you want to get into the industry, you've got to think about how am I going to be in the top three percent. Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. This podcast was created after I was going in and out of the ICU and ER, suffering from an illness, where I was able to meet the people who made the drug that would eventually save my life. And I wanted to make this podcast to show people how they can get into different science disciplines and show what are these different science, hard science type st- people doing in their everyday life and in their work. So some good examples are the George Church episode where you can see. What he works on and and how he thinks about things, or in today's episode where you're going to learn about Sean Casey, who is a space expert and business development expert in the space arena and has over 20 years of experience, and you're going to see a sense of who they are and you're going to think, hey, am I like that? Do these things interest me? So you can decide if you're unhappy where you are to transition to where they're at or to use what they're doing to enhance your own life. Additionally, if you like this, you should subscribe, tell your friends, and Follow us on Twitter at Lowell's here, and check out our website at learningwithlowell.com. Today we are joined by Sean Casey, who has a PhD and MBA. This is a I'm going to list through his、uh, previous experience to give you a sense of what this guy's about. He is the VP of Commercial Business Development, Atlas Space Operations. He's the principal at NewCap Partners. He he was an advisor for the Lunar Station Corp. He was a co-founder of the New York Space Alliance. He was a managing director of the Silicon Valley Space Center. He used to be a senior scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center. He was a principal scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Center. And I think you kind of get the point that this guy really understands space. And in this episode, we're going to get into how he says no, how he has to like really think about that as one of his big questions. What separates a space startup from other startups? How to force evolve yourself to get into the space industry? Why you need to be thinking about be- making yourself the in the top three percent if you want to get into space? Conferences you should be going to, unlooked for markets like un- untapped markets in the space arenas, and his work at Atlas Space Operations, how business development works, and how he does market research. Additionally, he is looking for sales agents. So if you are into sales at all and you want to get into the space industry,、uh, shoot him a message. Links are in the description. Other than that, let's get right into this. What is a question you have that you don't have the answer to? That you wish you had the answer to it. So the example I give is if the 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 universe has a causational relationship with the Big Bang. So like if the Big Bang didn't exist, like the universe wouldn't exist, I guess. And so I've always wondered what would be here if we took away the Big Bang. And、mm-hmm. I, like I talk to physicists, but they don't really give me good answers. But do you? <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that. But is there a question that you wish you had the answer to? And what is it? Um, yeah, it's it's probably not the、uh, the Big Bang question or you know questions about、uh, existentialism and existence, but but I would <clears throat> say the the question that I always want the answer to is when to say no to stuff,、um, and I think that、uh, you know, as we, we talk about time management and everything, it's it's an issue of saying yes and, and saying no and. You know, you always feel bad about saying no to things because there are always opportunities. You're like, oh, this is a big opportunity. That's a big opportunity. You'd like to know what are the opportunities that are actually going to play out. You know, a lot、mm-hmm. of people say, 
or some people say that you know only 20% of your efforts really amount to uh, having a big impact uh, on your life. You know, that's probably debatable, but it's something along those lines as to what are the activities you're doing today and how are they really going to uh, add value uh, down the road? So uh, the question I would always want to know the answer to, is this something I should say yes to or something I should say no to? And I don't really, you know, you can investigate, you know, how to get a better answer in that area. But you've got to, I find you have to be very careful about uh, what you what you agree to because uh, people tend to agree to too much stuff and then under-deliver, over-promise and under-deliver. And that's a very bad habit to get into. I was reading that the like a good rule of thumb is if you don't say hell yes to it, then it's probably not a good thing. Like if you're like really, really busy and someone asks you for something, it's like, a, yeah, I guess I could do that. Like apparently that's like a good like mm-hmm. litmus test. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've developed, if you've tried well, that in your life or not and if it's it, been effective. It, yeah, it, it depends. It depends because sometimes when you think about stuff, um, I, you know, I, generally in order to say yes, I say like, take some time to think about it. Take some time to think about what's involved. Take about, you know, what's the deliverable? How much time is it going to take? What's its impact going to be? And, you know, be very reluctant to say yes to things. Uh, you're, you know, if you need to know today, uh, the answer is no. Uh, mm. Right. So, um, and you can get caught up in the enthusiasm of it. You know, used car salesmen are used to, Generating that enthusiasm, and you know, for everybody that has uh, timeshares, you're like, how can I get you to yes? And so, be very, be very uh, reluctant to say yes on many, many things, and take the time. And that's just my, you know, my two cents. Mm-hmm. Done it. Come up with a formalized approach for getting to yes. The, I and think- make that a good habit. Yeah. It reminds me, maybe I read too much, but I think that, I think Lee Iacocca or someone in like the eighties and nineties, he said that when someone would pitch him, he'd have them write it down. Cause so often someone could speak very convincingly, but when you read it in the black and white, it's, it's harder to be manipulated by it. So it's kind of the mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah. To like, like make it harder. Well, yeah. Even, even just as to, you know, why you're going to say yes to stuff, do the pros and cons and, um, Try and formal, uh, uh, formalize that getting to yes in your in your mind, and and be reluctant to just agree to things right away. Makes sense. And the next big kind of question I wanted to ask you, and and this is probably going to tie into our, the last third of what we're going to talk about. But what is your unique superpower that you think I I, I you know talk about superpowers because like Marvel and stuff is coming out with a new movie. But what what do you think yeah. is unique about what you do? that separates you from everyone else? Because you've had such an incredible career. I, I would say it's looking for, uh, uh, looking for, looking for non-traditional answers hmm. to things. I mean, you know, trying to think out of it, trying to think out of the box. And sometimes, you know, you're just totally washed up <laughs> on that. You're like, what if, but I would say looking at a situation, asking why things are so and saying, you know, is there some way we could do this different? do this differently you know that combined with uh just being able to apply yourself uh to to get stuff done you know leap tall buildings in a single bound uh, type type thing but i would say fundamentally looking at a problem and saying how is it we can do this differently 
And sometimes you're just wrong. <laughs> There's a reason why mm-hmm. you can't do things. But I, I always, um, there's a, there's a Zen saying of, of the mind of the beginner, all things are possible and the mind of the expert, only a few. Uh, and I believe the truth is, is that both of those statements are true. Um, that it, it pays to come to problems with the mind of a beginner and say, why are we doing this? You know, can I step back and I and abandon my prejudices about things? Uh, on the other hand, uh, Coming in, coming in as an expert, you can kind of like cut to the chase and say, here's pretty much what we have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dealing with like firefighters or ER people, they just come in. They're like, this is what we do. This is the routine is we're not, you know, we're not inventing a new procedure here on this. So, uh, but I, I like to think that aside from just up applying best standard practices is to an ability to step back and say, well, why are we really doing this? You know, the five whys, why this, why that? And, and and try and burrow down into the issue. You might be familiar with this question that I believe is in Peter Thiel's Zero to One book, which is um, what is something you believe that others don't, which is kind of similar to like thinking differently. Have you heard anyone answer that question? Well, because I've been, I, I ask people it, but very rarely does do I get like a very interesting response. So I'm just curious. I'm, 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 I'm interest, interesting on what? On, think, on thinking differently on things? Yeah. Um, well, the, the 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 question specifically is like, what what is something you believe that others do not? Yeah. And when I ask people right. that, they usually just kind of like pirate back, like, oh, I don't know. Like it's like mm-hmm. kind of like, a, like a, mm-hmm. a filler. But I've never heard someone say, I believe that the colonial collapse disorder of bees is because of like Martians or something like something like. And then they make a really cogent argument as to why they believe that. I'm just wondering if you've ever, mm-hmm. and like all your mm-hmm. like thinking of differently, have you like noticed anyone who's able to? Who's who's done that? Well, in a really noticeable way. I uh, you know when I when I read uh, Teal's comment on that, it's kind of like an investment thesis, where uh, what do, what do you know that other people don't know? Uh, I have a presentation that I give to people, and I probably even gave that at the Chicago presentation, which is a scene out of A Beautiful Mind, where uh, John Nash, you know, is stuck in a world where you know he he believes things to be true and they're not true, and I think. Uh, that's a fundamental aspect of of entrepreneurship, and that when you wake up in the morning, uh, there are things that you believe to be true that other people don't believe to be true, and you've got to distinguish between is this a real idea or is this totally nuts. At the end of the movie of A Beautiful Mind, they ask John Nash, how does he deal with his, uh, you know, schizophrenia or whatever it might be, you know, hearing voices. And he says, well, I just don't listen to them anymore because he knows <laughs> those are not, those are not all not good ideas, although they seem very real. But as an investment thesis, um, you'd like to be investing in things uh, that are before the rest of the crowd. And I think that's what, what Peter Thiel was talking about. What are the things that you know to be true uh, that other people don't? Once everybody else knows it to be true, then they're all kind of piled in there. Hey, fast food is going to be a great market. Uh, you know, hey, I need to have my uh, my business online or something. I mean, if you were the first in there, you know, such as Amazon, uh, you know, you've got a you've got a head start. If you're uh, the Uber and the Lyft, um, you know, you've got a you know, what do you believe to be true? How are cell phones going to disrupt uh, the marketplace and disrupt traditional businesses? Um, and uh, you have an you have an opportunity uh, to uh, to enter that enter that area and execute on it. 
Um, and the dilemma, I think, for entrepreneurs is like, is this a real opportunity or is this kind of a John Nash opportunity? <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time, but, you know, it's just kind of the wrong time, the wrong place, uh, the wrong, the wrong, the wrong something. People that are, that have a deep insight into an industry and that have studied it will come up with different answers for, well, why things happened the way they did or what should happen in the future. And uh, I believe it's, it's much more difficult for the casual observer to have that kind of insight. And it usually comes from bending the time to study an issue and then develop your own unique thesis about it. And then, of course, it's the thesis that's testable. And all startups are testable, as Steve Blank will say. You know, you've got to go out and engage the marketplace. And that's, that's where you find out, is it a really good idea? Are you really getting traction? Or is it just, you know, not really the right idea? I think this kind of, kind of leads into one of the questions I was going to ask later, which is, what are some of the key things that a space startup or a space entrepreneur needs to know to be effective versus a regular entrepreneur? I think for, for the most part, like understanding the customer is a really key one, like having like a unique yeah. perception that other people do not have. But are there other th- areas that you've noticed that like a space entrepreneur has to be thinking really differently or to be really knowledgeable on to be effective in their roles? You know, Musk, Musk has this catchphrase that uh, space looks hard and it's harder than it looks. And, and that, and that is, you know, a, this is a really hard business because it's not like building a terrestrial business. You're building a business that you're going to operate remotely. And uh, you know, even with the, the rules about remote teams you know, distributed teams, there are three rules about distributed teams, co-locate, co-locate, co-locate. Well, you know, if you're talking about a space business, um, you're usually talking about, you know, distributed development and distributed assets. And it's just, uh, it's just hard to, it's hard to execute. And then um, the other part about this is what is your intuition about building and flying things in, in space? And, and that kind of intuition is is hard to come by. I mean, there are a few people that are part of the aerospace industry that have flown multiple missions and um, you know have a have a great deal of experience in working in Leo and Neo and beyond. But uh, you know, I feel as a culture we don't have a lot of good intuition on this. What the new space um, uh, opportunity is is creating is it's broadening the uh, growth of intuition about. Uh, building and flying things um, in space, and it lowers the bar, lowers the barrier to entry, so that more people can do it. You know, one of the uh, uh, you know least expensive uh, space entry points is you know Zach Manchester at one time was flying his chipset program, and you know for a thousand dollars you could program his little chipset. Uh, satellite and it would go beep, beep, beep in low Earth orbit. And, you know, you could build a ground station um, and, you know, be part of the, be part of the space industry for, you know, essentially, you know, a thousand bucks or something like that. I feel that what's, what's important on the new space sector is broadening the base of people who've built and flown things in space such that we can, as a community, develop a better intuition for how to do things that have pretty much been accomplished by superpower states and with extremely, extremely large teams. With any startup, you know, it's a combination of business, engineering, and management. And, you know, you might throw in legal, uh, legal too. And, 
you know, for your business to succeed, you've got to succeed in all four of those areas. And, you know, getting the business part, as we know, you know, there's fundamental aspects of it for accounting and marketing and, and, and customer interaction. That's kind of the same, you know, you've got to, you've got to become skilled in all the disciplines that are necessary uh, to build and fly, uh, fly hardware. And then again, you know, how do you manage the team? And then, you know, how do we deal with legal issues, mm-hmm. which, you know, these days can, can be international in scope. How do you get the, uh, the, you know, the, the spectral pass bans for communications? How do you deal with ITAR? How do you deal with your liability for launch and, uh, and deorbiting and all the regulatory stuff? So there, there are just a lot more things. Um, uh, the, the four areas that are important are kind of important for all startups, but they just get to be uh, a challenging disciplines to address for the for the space area. So it, it looks hard and as Elon says, it's harder it's harder than it looks. Is it possible for people to force evolve themselves to be into the space sector? Because a number of my listeners and there's even a, a lady sure. that I interviewed who um, like navigated her way into the space sector. But I'm curious if you found or have you noticed ways for people that people can kind of do what Elon Musk is famous for doing, which is kind of teaching himself how to be uh, effective at SpaceX, but how, yeah. So the question is like, how do, how can people force evolve themselves to be a part of this new space era? Well, I mean, that's traditionally, you know, they're like, Hey, I want to be part of the space program. Well, you know, number one, go join NASA. Right. And, uh, there was a, there was a time when, or, you know, go join the major aerospace firms, but there, there was a time when someone was asking me this question and it was right at the time when, uh, uh Diamantis, and, and company were starting the, the X Prize, and there was a big list of companies that were competing on the X Prize. Of course, Scaled Composites was one of them. There were there were a number a number of others, and you know you'd look at those new companies and say, well, sure, you could go be a part of a big aerospace company. You know, you know, B, you can go get your internship over at NASA, but but C, you know, what about this growing new space area? And that was you know literally twenty. 20 years ago. So as people demonstrate, if you set your mind to something, you can pretty much accomplish that. And whether it's, you know, being a brain surgeon or, or being, uh, you know, a financial trader or, you know, being, you know, less so being an astronaut, although we'll see what happens with Virgin, uh, Virgin Galactic, you know, the barriers, barriers coming down, but you still need to put in the time uh, to make that work. It's not like it's going to get to be any easier. And, and and I think there there are groups, um, you know, comments from uh, companies like Udemy that has online course curriculum, and uh, you know, one of the founders of Udemy, you know, um, has a passing comment, you know, who, who also works over at Stanford. He says, you know, for every brilliant person that I find over at Stanford, I find 400 more on Udemy that are comparable uh, to that. So. Um, you know what's 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 a problem for people is access to information, right? You know, hey, I need to go to this university and work with these faculty in order to get, you know, this this background. But uh, you know, today, you know, education is not what it was 20 years ago. Um, you can find a lot of credible material uh, that's online to come up to speed, but the onus is always on the individual. The onus is on the individual to apply themselves. And push themselves much like a much like a professional athlete. What am I going to do? 
How am I going to spend my time to improve my skill set, to improve my game so that I can be a competitor? If you look at a company like SpaceX, SpaceX has the advantage of being able to take, you know, probably the top 1% of all people that apply to the company and make them part of their, uh, make them part of their employee pool. You know, if you want to get into the industry, you've got to think about how am I going to be in the top 3%? I don't care what that is, whether that's, you know, it's probably a, a smaller percentage for professional sports, but whether it's law or medicine or aerospace or concert pianist or an artist, go down the list. Your goal is to be in the top three to five percent. Really, and that means one out of twenty-one. You know, everyone can say this is what I want to do. This is what my this is what my wish is. But as they say, you know, if you've got a goal without a plan, it's just a dream. So, you know, do you have a plan for accomplishing what you want? Do you have a plan for being the best at that? And I believe, you know, if you apply yourself, if you push all the other noise out of the system, all the other demands that you have on people on your time and you apply yourself, I mean, that's, that's, that's the beauty of, uh, you know, human capability is that, you know, people that apply themselves succeed yeah. no matter what the endeavor is. I've, I've never heard it phrased that way before. Like this idea of pushing to be the one, you know, the top 3%, which makes sense. Like why work so hard to be mediocre? <laughs> like no one wants to do that. The, but at the same yeah. time, when I, when I notice people working on stuff, I don't think they, they do it in that, in that mindset. Like of how do I do this in a way to ma- that'll make me the best. And I think that kind of changes the way you think about it. If you try and go into it with that type of mindset in the, in the talk, I, I think I've referenced it a couple of times. You talk about how like one of the key things that Really, really key. I'm sorry, we're using that word a number of times, but the is like the soft skills, like going out and talking to customers, going out and 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 seeing where the opportunities lie. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering, like, in, in a part of like this three percent motivation of trying to be the best, are there good conferences to go out and meet people and see what that three percent actually looks like? Because if you like, if you if you listen to an interview on Elon Musk, like that's not really what he's like. I mean, maybe that is what he's like in his daily life. Like, I don't know. But like, like 24-7, maybe he's a little different and like how he actually interacts with things. So is there a good way to ascertain maybe through going to conferences and talking to a lot of people what that 3% could look like for people? Certainly, if you, if you talk about Musk and not, you know, focus solely on, uh, on Tesla and SpaceX, but, you know, people say, you know, how has is, how is Tesla managed to sell the cars it has without really having an advertising campaign? And, uh, you know, I think there's a way of, of marketing, of, of marketing yourself, which is different than the way people have marketed things in the past. It's always been about networking, who you know, who knows you, what your reputation is. The conferences are an opportunity to, uh, to meet other people that are interested in, uh, in your field. And conferences are also an opportunity to meet people who aren't interested Right. It's, you know, new space is not just, hey, let me go to a bunch of space conferences and meet people who also are, are focused on space. Um, new space is about what are the other conferences that aren't involved in space? What are the other businesses that aren't involved in space that need a space strategy that need to be a consumer of space data? Uh, for instance, um, here in California, every four years out of Bakersfield, they have an event that's called Oil Rotto Days. Oil Rotto Days focuses on the California oil and gas industry. Um, what is the space representation at Oil Rotto Days? What is the space representation at the livestock 
conferences? What is the space representation on uh, on financial instruments, on the insurance industry? You want to go out and meet people that are not part of your immediate circle, because maybe that's where opportunities are. Tell me about how, uh, say, Spanish-speaking parts of the world are engaged with with space. There's a tremendous appetite for space in in Latin America, and um, um, you know how can you how can you bridge that gap between those people that are involved today and those people that aren't involved? Your your future customers are people that probably don't know about your business but want to take advantage of it. On this, I think it's important. Networking has always been important. Building a relationship with people has been important. Building your own reputation has been important. And, you know, many times when I go out and give talks, it's it's to really build that bridge between people that aren't in the space industry and try and encourage them to, to enter the space industry and recognize the, the opportunities that, that are present with the industry and then how they can participate, hardware, software, even as I say, for business, for marketing. I mean, there are many different skill sets that are necessary to make the industry succeed. And, you know, our job is to reach out to everybody. And I would say traditional non-spacefaring entities, that's probably where our biggest wins are going to be. Is there, if you had to, just a quick follow-up, if you had to go to recommend just one conference for people to check out, is there one that you would recommend? I, I think there, these days there are so many space conferences. I mean, and and they all serve different purposes. I just came back from the Colorado Space Symposium, which is down in Colorado Springs and has a heavy DOD emphasis. You know, the next next month I'm going out to Washington D.C. for the Space 2019 conference. There's a Space 2.0 conference that's done by uh, by Infocast. There's the International Personal Spaceflight Symposium that's down in. New Mexico, and then there are a number of other conferences that happen both in Europe and Asia. So, you know, if you're a U.S. listener, I would say probably your most important conferences may be the ones that aren't in the U.S. but are happening in Europe and Asia. If you're a European listener, then certainly you should, um, you know, take the time to come to conferences that are in the U.S. and elsewhere. And if you're a listener in Asia, then not only is it what's happening in Asia, but, you know, connecting with like-minded individuals in, in U.S. and in, in Europe. So, and of course, I think the, the conferences and communities that are in, in Latin America are important customers and partnerships that we need to develop. So to the extent that language is a barrier, we should work on overcoming, overcoming that to help build that new space community on a global scale. I think Google's coming out with like a babblefish type thing. I don't know if, if you're familiar with uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but um, sure. uh, right. yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I make references that no one gets. <laughs> so, no. Uh, okay, good. That's right. No, I've, I've got my towel over here and a bag of peanuts, so I'm always okay. ready to go. Okay, good. The, um, all right, so the because I kept mentioning Elon Musk, and I know this is one, one question I wanted to ask, are there other people who or other organizations that you think are being overlooked? Yeah, I, I generally say that, you know, there's sort of two classes of space entrepreneurs. There's the, the Uber class, which is uh, Musk and Bezos and, uh, you know, the late Paul Allen and uh, Richard Branson and even uh, Greg Weiler, where, you know, these are Uber, Uber entrepreneurs. 
they're the mere mortal uh, entrepreneurs. But uh, I think that the groups that are the groups that are overlooked is there's a tremendous appetite for space. We've we've talked about. I mean, I've mentioned the appetite among Spanish speaking uh, peoples of uh, the Latin America, Mexico, Brazil, those that have had somewhat of a of a participation in space, Ecuador. But you know, today with when you lower the bar of new space, it allows a whole bunch of different non-space players to have a role in the, in this industry. We just saw uh, Space IL with their uh, uh, lunar mission. You know, had they NASA usually says there are five phases to uh, space exploration, flyby, orbit, land, rove, sample return. Well, Space IL tried to go from, you know, ground zero to direct to a landing. And uh, you might say, was was that too much uh, to bite off in, in one felled swoop? But, you know, doing a fl- lunar flyby is the first step. Doing a lunar orbit, land, rove, Space IL, Israeli effort, very exciting, and we'll probably see additional, you know, missions coming from uh, from that group. Others. Just uh, last week, I was down uh, week before last down at Arizona State University, where they've started the Milo Institute. Uh, UAE is doing a Mars mission, which is a combination of UAE and three other U.S. institutions, one of which includes Arizona State University, to um, do an imaging Mars. Program the Milo Institute is intended to bring together other non-spacefaring uh, countries and put them in kind of a portfolio to do future space missions. Of course, it's a pay-to-play opportunity, and there are other companies that have looked to that same customer base. Bigelow has been—you can do your own ISS module that's focused on a national effort. Uh, Golden Spike, the lunar lander. Uh, program had a similar uh, similar thought. So I, I think there's uh, a number of non-traditional space entities, state or non-state players, that can have a role in this industry that we're not really paying attention to. And clearly, there are a lot of uh, corporate entities, um, you might say out of the oil and gas industry, that are used to making major investments in infrastructure to uh, to yield financial returns. And I, what we haven't seen yet and that we're going to see pretty much in the next 20 years are those uh, companies uh, uh, having a role in uh, in the space sector. Uh, part-time Scientist has, uh, I think one of their sponsors is Vodafone that's talking about, you know, communication services on the, on the lunar surface where you have a lot of major you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that should be looking at the space sector and saying, is this something that we think is a good market opportunity? Is this a technology that we think should be part of uh, part of our corporate infrastructure? And do we build, you know, do the build versus buy trade-off? Sort of the trade-off between, you know, do I want my own cloud computing solution? Do I want to create, you know, do I want to buy Amazon's cloud computing solution? Do I need my own? What what should I do here? You know, fundamentally, I think it's the people that haven't had a role in space that are ones that we should be looking looking to. Speaking about your um, role as someone who's who helps find good companies, have have you heard a good pitch or like is there a way? I'm trying to think how to ask this question because like I, I 
in, in your talk that you gave, that which everyone should go watch that talk as well. Like it's really good, especially if you want to build a, a space startup. I think like, like he goes into a, a number of things uh, very, very effectively and I'll link them in the, in the description. But I'm, I'm curious, like in, in terms of, of people like getting started and then like they have the team and they're like having to do these pitches when, when you see these pitches, have you, has, has there ever been one that stood out really, really well that like, even to this day, like is something that you use as an example of a good pitch? Well, I think, um, you know, a startup, a startup is a journey on that. And, you know, if you're looking to, uh, early stage companies, I mean, um, you know, companies are going to try and figure out what is their market uh, market opportunity. It's not just being in, you know, about being in space, but it's what about the the marketplace that requires this, you know, a space asset as a uh, as a solution. Um, to me, the uh, you know the the effective pitches are. Um, ones that focus on a market and a problem and then say from that and say this is why a space-based business is an answer to that to that problem and uh and going from there um you know startups have an opportunity to pivot as they learn more about the market um and you might even think of a company like nanoracks as an example of that nanoracks uh and we have a presentation that we did in 2000 and I want to say 2011 called space is not for billionaires and it featured rich Brunel from nanoracks talking about their access to the international space station and you know you could build you could build microgravity experiments and fly them and you know everything was on the inside of the space station um, then what happened was uh, you know NASA launched a few cubesats from uh, from the International Space Station, you know, they they have a deployer, they open the lock and they the arm comes and positions the deployer to release the small satellites. After that happened, when that when that uh, quote news story broke, all of a sudden the phone started ringing over a nanoracks and saying, hey, we'd like to be able to do that. Do you offer that as a launch service? That was not part of Rich Purnell's original presentation that you can see on Space is not, it was with the MIT Venture Lab, MIT Stanford Venture Lab group uh, here in the Bay Area that does monthly presentations. Space is not for billionaires anymore. And uh, that was not part of their original plan. But, you know, because of the opportunity, because of the market demand, now launching your uh, small sats from the ISS is a common practice. And, and Nanorax has even built a, uh, a modified uh, airlock to accommodate uh, launch opportunities uh, so that they can serve that market, uh, that market better. Um, and, you know, was that part of the original plan? No. Did it happen? Yes. Did they seize on the opportunity? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's part of the nature of, of, of space companies. I mean, and that's part of the risk of startups. You know, do you have the right team or is this the team that's actually going to figure out where the market is? On, on this in you know in this in this opportunity so uh certainly you've seen a lot of bad presentations and bad presentations usually start with hi i'm an engineer this is what i've developed and here's how i'm going to sell it it's like let me reverse that story and tell me why the market actually 
is going to need this and how you're going to address uh, that, uh, um, uh, you know, that product market, uh, market fix. And, you know, startups are, when you're doing pitches, there are, there are businesses that need venture capital funding and businesses that don't. Not every good business requires venture capital funding to get started. There are grassroots um, businesses that succeed very well, and you know they're funded, founded by entrepreneurs that that succeed in in just doing uh, um, you know what they what they excel at. Venture capital funding is for growing a business. Um, the founders of Rocket Lab were busy building engines and launching things before they actually got the venture capital funding to turn it into the company it is today. But when you need to grow and scale, that's the time to go, uh, um, you know, seek that kind, of, seek that kind of money because venture capitalists are saying, "I'm going to give you X amount of money today. I'm expecting a return five to seven years from now." That's a totally different relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, especially in the the U.S., there's a uh, a lot of other avenues like um and non dilutive ad, ad, avenues that you can go through with uh like the SBIRs and stuff to get like early stage funding to help build your prototypes and stuff. Which um I don't know if a lot of people are aware of that, but you should definitely go check out the SBIR website and uh and and talk to some of the government agencies before you think just like oh I have to get funding from a VC. Cause like, yeah, I, I think you said it exactly right. Like it, it very, it's a very different relationship when, um, when you know there's going to be R and D and you already have like a, well, you have to have a return and you know, like right away, like it makes it uh, a harder conversation to have, I think. Um, right. You've got, you got, you've got in your, in your company, you've got two things to retire market risk and technology risk. Right. <laughs> and, uh, um, you kind of don't want, and that's, you know, that's what Steve Plank will say market risk or technology risk and best to be a company that only has one of those. And, um, I, I you know, I kind of believe you can t- retire technology risk through endless all nighters and, you know, working processes that you're relatively, uh, um, relatively secure with, uh, you know, that you've done before in order to, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat, but retiring market risk is, is a whole nother beast, which is how am I just going to sell that product to order? What are customers? What's the price point that customers are going to pay for this? And then, you know, what's your margin associated with that? And who are my customers? How do I reach them? Um, what do they know about me? And, uh, and, and that's an entirely different skill set. Yeah. The, um, this is actually a, a good segue because this uh, talks about a key area that you're really great at, which 